I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning. I know this is Pentecost, and what I'm going to share, I believe you'll see there's a connection between how the Spirit of God has to help us and empower us as individuals, but also as families, churches, and people in our country. God's Spirit is what's going to help us in the days ahead. And if, if God is not for us, then we're in trouble, right? So the Bible says, if God be with you, who can be against you? And I believe God is for us as we put our trust in him. So turn to the book of Jeremiah chapter 14. And I've entitled this message, Crossing the Line of No Return. And we'll talk about what I mean by that in a moment. And, and I was thinking this chapter is a very difficult chapter. There's a lot of challenge to it. And um, you ever wonder how countries get to the place where they get into crisis? And we see that around the world. Countries enter into a time of extreme crisis. We could say there's a crisis in, uh, in Europe. We could say there's crisis in Africa. There's crisis around the world. And we also see it beginning to happen in our own nation. We'll talk about some of those things in a moment. And in the question that comes to my mind, are there some contributing factors towards these crises? And is what happened to Judah in the 6th century before Christ applicable to ourselves and also to other countries in the 21st century. And then what we can learn uh, when we cross certain boundaries in relationships, you know, what, what can we learn as individuals about these crises? And, you know, how does these things impact our lives? We're going to look at that because I believe that uh, life is primarily a relationship. It starts out with a relationship with God Starts out with relationships with loved ones. We come in a family. You know, we kind of grow up. Some of us maybe remain single, but we still have friends. We have other people. We, we get married. We have family. And so all of these things impact us and how we relate to each other. But there are times when we begin to violate relationships. And then it has it puts great strain on them. And there's tension there. And then there's a crisis there. And is there a place where those relationships just begin to disintegrate. We want to look at that from the text we're going to look at this morning. And in Jeremiah uh, 14, uh, we, I, I was going to say here, we also notice that in that hour of crisis in the na nation of Judah, most of the leaders were complacent regarding their relationship with God. And I, I really believe this is a core idea, that when we're not walking with God, we're going to be in a time of crisis. It, it just takes time to unfold. It'll take time to develop, but we will get there. And so everything is predicated, everything is determined on my relationship with God. If I, have a, if I have an intimate relationship with God, I believe we can avoid a lot of problems in our lives. We just, we just avoid a lot of things because a lot of what happens is a result of bad decisions in our lives and we get these consequences. And so I want to take a look at some of the assumptions that they were making and that a lot of times people are kind of moving along with a sense of complacency, just presuming that everything is going to work out well in the end. And a lot of times it just doesn't work that way. And why is that? And what can we do about it? And then I want to also take a look this morning on where we're getting our information from. Because I think we're living in an age where we have more information than we've ever had before. We have more access to more information. And people are becoming more confused as to what is right, what is wrong, what's true, what's false. You know, we have, you know, people talk about fake news. We don't know who to believe anymore right? Are we struggling with these issues? Well, I'm going to show you that that's the same pressures 
that these people were living under in the day of Jeremiah. So I want to take a hard look at, just look at two things that we need to understand in order to, uh, well, really, in, in, in regards to God's divine chastisement and judgment. Now, I want to define those terms because I think there is a difference between being corrected and disciplined by God, and then there's a, a situation where God just brings you know, ultimate destruction and allows it to happen in people's lives. And why is there, what's the difference? And the first point I'm trying to get across today is the consequences of disobeying God's requirements. There are always consequences. We, you know, we would say that we're committing sin. There's a consequence of that. Uh, but what is it that God desires from us? What's God looking from us? In other words, uh, what are our obligations? Now, we, we read the Bible. We know there's two covenants, right? There's an old covenant. There's a new covenant. We recognize that. We know there's a distinct difference between the two. But I want to make a, uh, an overarching connectedness between the two, and it's simply this. How many realize that God has never changed? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The nature of God is the same. Now, God is a God that covets. He wants to have a relationship with his creation. He wants a relationship with each one of us. He's even made it possible that every person can actually enter into a relationship with him. How beautiful is that? He's made the provision that you and I can be reconciled to him, that we can have uh, an intimate relationship with God, that we can get to know God's ways, we can get to know God's design for us as human beings. We were made in the image of God. God's designed us to be healthy and beautiful in the sense that we have, you know, we're, we're, I will call it, uh, God's purposes for humanity. But when we move away from God, what we're going to see is it begins to dehumanize us. And we're seeing a process that when people turn from God, I, I will call it a dehumanizing element begins to creep into our culture. So let's take a look here from the book of Deuteronomy that, that we're going to see that we have you know, both the blessings that come as a result of obedience and what occurs when people disobey. Okay, the old covenant was a little bit more, uh, it was just written out. If you do these things, God says, I will bless you. If you do these things, you will experience these curses as a result of disobeying our covenant. <clears throat> I don't know if you see that, but the Deuter book of Deuteronomy is very clear about it. Here's how he writes it. <clears throat> Moses says, if you fully obey the Lord your God, and carefully follow all his commands. Now, I notice the adjectives that are descriptives. Fully, carefully. You get the idea that God wants us to pay close attention. Anybody see that? God is interested in us taking this obligation very seriously. Now, I believe that there, there are diff, distinct differences between the two covenants. I get it, and I'll try to bring those out. But at this point, we need to understand what's happening in the context of the book of Jeremiah. What's happening is the people have failed to do what God's asked. They have failed to fully obey and carefully follow all his commands. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. When you do that, God says, I will honor you. That's why we read in 1 Samuel 2.30, God says, if you honor me, I'll honor you. 
I believe that principle is still in operation today. If we walk around honoring God, God will honor our lives. There's just a principle, and that's what happens. In verse 2, it says, all these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Now, how many know that this was, this was the general rule of things, but there were always times of exception. There were moments when it seemed like God wasn't blessing when people were obeying. A classic story is Job. That's why Job was struggling, by the way. You know, but we have to remember something. Job was probably living before the Mosaic Covenant. People don't realize that. But he was still struggling because this is a principle God has. And then, of course, we read Asaph in the Psalms. I talked about this a week or so ago, or last week or the week before. I don't remember which week. But I talked about how he was struggling when he saw the wicked were flourishing and the righteous were suffering. He goes, I don't get this, God. And then he says, I came into the sanctuary of God and I realized it's a matter of timing. Sometimes it seems like we're going through a difficult time and God's not seeing what our needs are, but really it's a test. And then the people who are, are the wicked, who are, have no regard for God, God still loves people and he's still blessing people, but he's giving them time to repent. That's an important idea with God because God's not willing that any should perish. And I brought those ideas out uh, in the last week or two. Then, then we move on to verse 15. I'm skipping a bit because I want you to see, however, he's talking about blessings. Now I'm going to talk about what happens. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and they will overtake you. And then we see in verse 22, the one we're going to look at in Jeremiah 14. He says, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, that's the key word, drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. Now, how many go, I don't want any of these things in my life? Hard pass. Anybody up for a hard pass on any one of these things in verse 22? I'd say, let's not go there, right? So I want to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to avoid this stuff if at all possible. I think wise people say, why would I, you know, do something that would you know, allow this to come into my life. So one of the things we need to understand, it's a loving thing to warn people of impending danger. How many say that's true? Aren't you glad when you see a sign that says, do not touch this fence, you may be electrocuted. That's when you hope you're able to read the language, you know. But when I see signs tacked on any fence, I'm gonna pay attention to that sign because it's probably a warning. And if we, and I notice some people, they seem to do the very opposite of what the signs say. And I, I don't understand, you know, like, you know, do not trespass. I'm going there anyways, right? But there are warnings, don't do that. And you know, sometimes when people do that, there's maybe immediately there's no consequence. But maybe there's a bull in the pasture and you don't know it, you know, and you might be running for all you're worth. So you better pay attention to the warning signs. Now, I think we need to stop there and ask a couple of important questions. We, know, we need to know the difference between chastisement or correction in the lives of God's people and the total destruction of some of the people groups that had so degenerated that there was nothing left to salvage. Remember that process, made in the image of God, sinning against God, we're dehumanizing ourselves. Does anybody notice that there's a movement towards dehumanization today? Anybody see that? Okay, so we're seeing that. And... Now we read here, 
Uh, well, first of all, how many know that when, when people live that kind of a lifestyle, God says, finally, I've had enough of it, and he, he warns and warns and warns, and then eventually he, he decides he's going to do something, and he's telling Abraham, I'm going to go down and destroy these cities in the plain, but I'm going to check it out first. Uh, these are all so that we get an understanding. God's judgment is never impetuous, rash. It's based on his righteous decrees and justice. So he looks and he says, Moses, uh, Abraham comes along and says, hey, you know, because he knew his, his nephew's down there. He's lots of righteous person. He says, hey, God, you know, if there's 50 righteous people, would you destroy the city over 50? I mean, all the rest are wicked, but wouldn't you spare it for 50? And God says, Absolutely. Remember that prayer in Genesis 18? He goes all the way down negotiating with God. He says, even if there's 10 people, God says, I won't destroy the city for 10 people. And I believe God is so gracious that he actually sent the angels in to rescue the only righteous people in the city and get them out of town, right? And the rest of the city perished. And you know, today when you go through Israel, they just say, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah probably was. They have no idea. Because there's just barrenness there, wasteland. You know, they're just giving you an idea. This is probably where they were located. It's totally different, you know, destroyed. Now, how many here, you are somehow a descendant of the Amalekites? Nobody's raising their hands. Well, remember, they were the guys that attacked Israel, and God says, you've attacked my people, you know, when they were going into the promised land. He says, I'm going to blot out your memory from the face of the earth. So I don't notice there's too many Amalekites running around here today. I just don't see them. How many here, you're probably related to some of the Hittites or some of the other Canaanites in the land? No, we don't remember those guys. Those are the people God gave 400 years to repent. They didn't do it. And then he told Israel to go in and to judge them. Remember that story? So we need to understand that God is going to address people who are you know, living a life that's in deviation from his intended purpose. You go, well, why can God do that? Because he's the creator and he's holding us all accountable. There's a responsibility there. But to his people, this is what God does. He doesn't do it that way. He, he corrects us. And Hebrews, the writer there, quotes from the Proverbs and he says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. So, you know, one of the temptations in our life is is that we, we kind of get annoyed with God for bugging us, you know, like he's gonna warn us. Some, don't even resent the fact that he may be rebuking you or correcting you. How many think correction is actually a good thing? So I have to change my attitude about corrections. I believe this culture today does not like being corrected. How many say that's true? We're all offended, you know? Can we stop being so offended and start accepting what I consider healthy correction? I, I, you know, sometimes criticism is unhealthy. We're not suggesting that. I think you can depreciate people and put them down, tear them down. That's, that's not good. But I mean, you know, when somebody cares about you and saying, hey, you know, I noticed this and this is probably detrimental to you, instead of becoming defensive and resentful, we should actually accept that correction. They're helping us. And as a matter of fact, God does it because it says here, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so when you and I are being disciplined by God, we should be thankful because that's a sign, according to the writer of Hebrews, that we're actually God's kids. You know, he doesn't discipline his non-kids, you know, not in his family. You don't walk around. How many here walk around? I just discipline total strangers, you know. Most of us don't do that. You know, maybe a few of you might be correcting a few people, but that's not really our job. Our job is to 
you know, focus on the people we love and make sure that we discipline our kids so that they don't do stupid things when they get older. We're trying to prepare them for life to make, become healthy, responsible, loving, caring people, right? I'm going to say that's true. We do that. Now, we're in a culture today that we don't like, you know, discipline's almost a negative idea. How many know that's true? You have to be very wise what you're doing here. And, I, and I'm not talking abuse here, folks. But I think we need to learn that there's, you need to help create boundaries for people. Because if we don't have healthy boundaries in our lives, what's going to happen is we're going to have unsuccessful relationships in the future. And I see that all the time. A lot of people have very difficult time in relationships because they don't have any sort of healthy boundaries. But you see, God is a healthy father, and he's going to care about us. And then I think there are some people out there uh, that think that they're believers, but they're not. And you say, well, where do you come up with this idea, Pastor? Well, I see it in the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. How many think that's interesting? So, you know, you know, we think that if I'm saying the right words that I'm a Christian, I'm going, no, there's more to it than that. I think that we confess Christ as Lord. So what's the condition? I think this is the similarity between the Old and New Testament. Listen to what it says. Jesus says, you know, it's those who do my will, it's the ones who do the will of the Father who are in heaven. Let me read it again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is Matthew 7, 21. So how many are now saying, okay, this is a condition. We don't think of it this way, do we? Now, this is not works. This is people who have a genuine trust and faith in God who are saying, you know what? I've given my life over to the whom? The Lord. And therefore, because he's my Lord, I will do what my Lord wills for me to do. So then I'm like Jesus praying in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. And I think that's so critical. So it's not just doing my own thing. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people are deceived because some of them will come to Jesus at the end and say, did we not prophesy in your name? Well, Jesus said, yeah, a lot of false prophets. He said, and didn't we drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So it suggests to me that if I have genuine faith, I won't be doing evil things. I will be doing good things, godly things, right? As a matter of fact, you know, uh, so I just wrote down here really quick. I'm jumping over a little bit here. So, so what does God require of us, new covenant believers? Well, I, I think he simply requires that you and I are putting our, 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 fit, our trust in Christ and in his redemptive work for us, and then we are free now to walk in the empowered life of the Holy Spirit, and we mature into the fullness of Christ. This is what it's all about. If you haven't figured this out yet, this is the Christian life. I've just summarized it. I'm trusting in the finished work of Christ, I'm trusting that he died for my sins, but now he's freed me from the power and the penalty of sin so I can now walk in freedom to do the right thing. Does everybody catch it? This is it. I've just summarized it. Beautiful. And you say, how do you know this stuff? Because Romans tells me something. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh or the sinful nature, you will die. But if, the spirit, but, if the, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, 
you will live. So who's responsible for dealing with the wrong things inside of us? The right answer is, we are, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So it's a cooperation. Because I know a lot of times people say, Pastor, I've been trying and trying and trying, and I never get free. I said, okay, trying isn't the right answer. Here's what you need to do. It's called trusting and trying. Let's put trusting first and trying second. Okay. Lord, I cannot do this without your empowerment. Now help me to do the right thing. I've just added the right ingredient. Is everybody following this? this is a, I'm, I'm trying to explain it so that we walk in victory. Because a lot of times we're going, I, I keep getting beat up. I'm saying, no, begin to take this seriously and ask God's help. And then he says, uh, as a matter of fact, he says this about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is really the result of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is what he says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This is what should be coming from our lives. And maybe when we first start out, we may only have small traces of these things. But, you know, if we've been walking with God for a long time, if this stuff is not showing up, that should be a little, I should be getting concerned. Because if the root is right, the fruit will be right. And if the fruit is wrong, problem with the root. We better go back and check and make sure we are truly a believer, right? Then he goes on and says this, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And usually, and I'm guilty of this, and we all stop and say, this is the fruit of the Spirit, right? But let's look at the next verse, because I think this is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus have what? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we got to stop making room and excuses for our sin in our lives. We need to take that stuff and say, this is death and I'm gonna die to it because if I don't die to these things, I'm in trouble. And then after that, since we live by the Spirit, he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now we're walking with God. Everybody see it? All connects. Now, having said that, let's return to the prophet Jeremiah because I'm giving you a background to understand this in a context that will be applicable to us as New Testament believers. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the what? The drought. Why did they have drought according to the Old Covenant? This is a quiz. I just gave you the answer earlier. Because they weren't fully obeying and carefully doing the word of God. They were in violation. Now, it wasn't just like, you know, I did this and then it happened. Let me explain to you. This has been going on decade after decade after decade. He's been warning. God's been warning them, sending the prophets generation after generation. So now Jeremiah comes along. We're talking hundreds of years of elapsed, and the people are going further and further and further away from God. How many say that's a problem? And eventually they're getting so distant from God, they have a very diff- they have a corrupted idea of who God is and their covenant. Verse 2, jo- Judah mourns. Her cities languish. They wail for the land and a cry goes up from Jerusalem. Now, they're in, they're in a, they're, they've been ignoring the covenant and they're experiencing drought and the result is, uh, as Andrew Dearborn points out, the weather pattern in the eastern Mediterranean is such that from late spring through mid-fall, there is no rain. It's a very deserty climate. I've been there. It's very dry. But then you get into the winter season and they usually get wind, uh, rain. 
But because they had violated the covenant, there's no rain. So what happens when there's no rain? Well, you get in trouble. You have a drought, a crippling phenomenon. It was a graphic reminder of how dependent life is on forces outside of human control. Now, this drought was so severe. As a matter of fact, the Masoretic text, which is where we get the New King James and the King James Version, they actually, they read the word drought, it's in the plural, which means they had more than one drought. Now, it doesn't matter. All I know is there's great severity in this drought. So severe, it says, uh, that it says in verse three, the nobles sent their servants for water and they go to the cisterns because it's a country where, they, where it rains or there's runoff, they kind of hang on to the water, but could find no water. There was no water to be found. They returned with their jars unfulfilled. They were dismayed and despairing and they covered their heads, which was really a sign of mourning. Or as uh, Elmer Martin says, it was a cultural expression of embarrassment and frustration. I mean, this was, it was really uh, a very difficult time. Verse four, it said, the ground is cracked because there's no rain in the land. Have you ever seen those pictures where you see the, where there's drought and the ground is all cracked? How many have ever seen a picture like that? Yeah, this is the picture that we're being painted for us. This is bad stuff. The farmers are dismayed and they're covering their heads. You know, usually when you have drought, what's the thing that emerges from drought? Famine, thank you. Because you, you, there's no way to grow crops. I mean, aren't we blessed right now? It's raining, you know, and we need it. The farmers need it because most of us don't realize this. No, I'm just kidding. We all know the farmers grow the, the crops. The crops get produced into food items. The food items be brought to the store, and you and I have something to eat. Isn't that great? But what happens if the, the beginning of the food chain comes to an end? There's no production. There's no food in the stores, and you and I are without food. That's a bad situation to be in. How many say that's terrible? That's famine. And so Jeremiah, in his book, The Lamentations, which is the book following Jeremiah, he is now writing, it's more poetic, and he, this is what he's saying, how bad it was. He describes it. He says, because of the thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Why? They don't have anything to give. He says, those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. What's he saying? Even the wealthiest people are without. It's a terrible condition the country's in. He says, the punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Now, think about that statement. Sodom, Abraham was petitioning on her behalf. Was he not? Of course he was. But think about it. He said it was, it was more merciful to be destroyed in a moment than to go through a time of drought and famine. How harsh is that to watch people slowly die? As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, the princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rupees, their appearances like lapis lazuli, and now they are dark, blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the street. Their skins have shriveled on their bones and has become as dry as a stick. These are terrible descriptive things, are they not? People are really suffering here. He says, those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine, racked with hunger. They waste away for lack of food from the field. And it's so intense. Listen to the next verse. This is kind of disgusting. You know, people will do crazy things when they're in extreme crisis. The crisis is so extreme, Jeremiah says. This is what starts happening. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who become their food. 
when my where my people were destroyed. How many go? This is not a very pretty picture. This is really degenerating. I think we need to see the picture. Let's go back to Jeremiah. Even the, even the uh, environment is affected by this famine. It says, even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there is no grass. Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights and pant like jackals. Their eyes fail for lack of food. Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord. So Jeremiah now is interceding. He's going, I know that we're, we're culpable. I know we broke your covenants. I, I know the problem. I know we're it. But he says, for the sake of your name, you know, do something. Now, why didn't he say, Lord, we're repenting? Because the answer was, they really weren't repenting. So Jeremiah is just appealing for God's mercy here. For we have often rebelled. We have sinned against you. We know why this has happened to us, Lord. All classes were now affected, uh, F.B. Huey says, by the drought. Nobles, servants, farmers, even the animals, the doe, which was proverbially known for its devoted care of its young. However, it deserted its newborn fawn and left it to die because there was no grass. Wild donkeys were accustomed to the desert, had the ability to find grass in every, anywhere. However, they now stood on a barren height, gasping for breath in the stifling heat like jackals. As they looked in vain for grazing ground, their eyes glazed over in death or weakness. Jeremiah's petition as I said, is not based on repentance. He's just asking God for mercy. Okay, let's move to the second point. I only got two points, thankfully, right? The diff well, because we're running out of time. I took a long time to build up an understanding here. I want to take a look at the difference between not just chastisement and judgment. What about remorse and repentance? You see, going through the religious motions, uh, or rituals is not what moves the heart of God. These guys were still in the temple, you know, doing their thing every, every day, but it was just a ritual. Do you know we can become Christians and it becomes very ritualistic? And it doesn't mean anything anymore. Often we just begin to presume, but in our relationship with God and others, I, I think we can act presumptuously with people, you know, but then one day it's too late. We've crossed the line and that severs our most vital relationships. See, I think there's a place where we can cross the line. You know, maybe I've been a pastor too long, but I've had people come into my office and say, you know, uh, I just can't do it anymore. You know, whatever the issue is, usually it's a pretty significant issue, and it's probably happened more than one time. It's happened over and over again. And the person just goes, what happens is we wound the people that are closest to us, and then eventually our hearts get hard. See, Jesus says divorce comes as a result of the hardness of the heart, right? That's what he says. And so, the, so what people say to me as pastor, I don't hate the person anymore. I just don't feel anything for them. You see, that's indifference. That's because your heart got hard. And why did it get hard? Because you're protecting yourself from being wounded. Now, I want, to, I want you to think about this. Is it possible for us to just keep wounding God over and over again? See, I don't think we think about sin in the way God looks at it. Think about it this way. When David sinned, you know what he said in Psalm 51? Even though he had committed murder against Uriah by sending him into the battle so he could take his wife and commit adultery, which he had already done, and he had sinned against Bathsheba, what could she do? He was the king, he commanded her. I mean, it was a very tough situation to be living in. And you know what David's prayer in Psalm 51, you know what he says? Against you and you only have I sinned. What was David really saying? God, my sin is primarily against you. Usually when you and I sin, we don't think of sin as, God, I'm so sorry I sinned against you. 
Usually it's, God, I'm sorry I sinned against this person or that person, or I'm so sorry because I was an idiot and I feel bad about who I am. But do we really understand the nature of sin, that we're actually sinning against God? That's a different concept. David really had the right understanding that we're actually sinning against God. Jeremiah goes on, you who are the hope of Israel, it's savior in times of distress. Why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays only a night? In other words, God, why aren't you doing something? It just seems like you're passing through. You're not even paying attention to us. It says, why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? Who are among us, Lord, and we bear your name? Do not, yeah, you are among us, Lord. He says, but don't forsake us. It seems like God says, okay, guys, I have appealed to you decade after decade, century after century, and all you do is ignore me and continue to live as if I don't exist. Yeah, you've, you, you, you say my name, you have a temple, you go through the motions, but reality, you're, you're living your own life. You're, you're, you're choosing the gods of the culture. You're embracing the value structure of the land in which you're living in. You've turned your back on me, and now that you're al I'm allowing the, by, by the circumstances of your sin to have full impact on you. You have violated my covenant, which you had said you would agree to way back here, and now you have so violated, you're experiencing the consequences of it, and now you're saying, why aren't I doing anything? It's because you guys aren't repenting. That's why. And so, you know, it's interesting. How many people do you know that the only pro the problem they have is not that, you know, they're sorry for what they've done wrong. They're just sorry for how painful it is in the consequences they're experiencing. And that's the nature of remorse. You see, repentance is best understood when a person grieves over what they have done and begin to make changes so that their behavior doesn't continue to affect those they love in a negative way. In other words, I recognize my behavior as sinful, and I say, God, I want to be different than what I am. I don't want to continue to do this, and therefore I'm changing my mind about this behavior. I'm no longer loving it. I hate it, and I'm not going to do it, and by your grace and help, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to, I'm going to relate to you differently, and I'm going to relate to other people differently. That's repentance. Okay? And you know, you, and, and, you know, they're asking God's help to make changes in their lives and work toward making those changes. Remorse, however, simply sorry for the consequences. And soon as the consequences lift, they go back and do what they did before. Right? Because they actually love their sin, they just don't like the consequences of their sin. Come on, how many people we know that's the case? Oh, come on, that's true. And that can be in our lives too. You know, we go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I'm gonna change. But in reality, deep down inside, we actually, we're doing what we want to do. I always say this, people do what they wanna do. You go, no, I'm in bondage, pastor. I'm addicted. I said, yeah, you may be addicted, but nobody put a gun to your head to get you going. You know, think about what you're doing. And if that's a problem, identify it and ask God's help to overcome it. I believe that there is a power greater the power of the Spirit of God is greater than our sin. There's a grace greater than our sin. We need to know that. And so we gotta to get to that place where we're no longer sorry for getting caught and the pain upon ourselves, but we're actually sorry for wounding and violating the people that we love, particularly God. That's a whole different way of looking at it, and that's the right way of looking at it. So this is uh, 
And, and, and that's why I say this, because we're getting to that place where we can keep abusing a person's goodness and forgiveness and grace until finally they go no more. Listen to what, what happens here in verse uh, 10. This is what the Lord says about this people. Remember Jeremiah's petitioning. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. In other words, they like sinning, is what he's saying. So the Lord does not accept them, and he will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. There is a line that we can cross. We don't want to go there. You see, I love the scripture that says, I will remember your sins no more. I love that verse. I don't want God to say, Paul, I'm now going to remember your sins, and I'm going to punish you for them. I don't want that verse. How many go, hard pass on that verse? Hard pass. I've got my hand. Hard pass. Listen, if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful, and he's righteous in forgiving our sins. How can he be righteous? Because he takes the sin on himself. So every time I'm sinning, I'm, I'm actually helping crucify Christ. My sin, you see, we go, no, the Romans crucified him. No, the Jewish people. No, 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 no. My sin crucified him. I need to understand this behavior is the reason why he's crucified. He's righteous and just to forgive my sins, but doesn't stop there. And to what? Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. God has a power to cleanse us and deliver us, and we need to understand that. Wow. Then the Lord said to me, and look at this verse, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Jeremiah, stop praying. I'm not going to answer. Three times in this book, God says to Jeremiah, stop praying for them. I'm not listening to your prayer anymore. They've gone too far. This is what's going to happen. Although they fast, I'm not listening to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, the famine, and the plague. What's he saying? I'm actually letting the consequences of their behavior take them out. They have violated my covenant. This is what's going to happen. They were told. They've been told all along. They knew all along. Wow. Is this, some people say, is this heavy? Yeah, it is heavy. You know, but now Jeremiah goes for the new tactic. Here's Jeremiah's new tactic, verse uh, 13. Uh, he said, But alas, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, you will not see sword or fa suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. So now what's going on? Well, all the religious people, this is a very religious country. You got priests and you got prophets. Jeremiah is one of the lone voices saying, we've gone too far, God's going to allow the consequences of a violated covenant. The rest of them are saying, oh, no, 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 we've got the temple here, we're offering sacrifices here, it's all going to work out good. Man, peace, prosperity, you just got to say the right words and do the right stuff, it'll all work out. Why, we better hear this message today. He goes on to say, then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I've not even sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They're prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. They're just speaking out of their head. They got it totally confused. Be careful, guys. 
Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying my name. I did not send them. Yet they're saying, no sword, no famine will touch the land. The same prophets will perish by sword and famine. And he said, and the people who are prophesying to you will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. They will be, there will be no one to bury them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. What is he saying? He's saying the people who are listening to their messaging and buying it, they're going to suffer with them. That's what he's saying. Now, you say, how do you know who's right and who's wrong when you hear all this preaching in North America anyways? I'll go, it's real simple. Go back to the word of God. Right here. You know, God has a covenant with us. Do you think that God says, oh, no, it's no problem. Just go ahead and do what you want to do. And how many, I see so much coming undone, it's unbelievable. Do you think God is just looking down from heaven saying, oh, everything goes, it's fine with me? Or does God just give people over to their sin? I read that in the book of Romans. He just lets it go. You guys, you guys are suffering. And is anybody figuring out yet that Canada is not the same place and that we're actually moving in a direction? Now, if you're, if you're at least 70 years old, see, you know, it takes... It takes time to see this stuff develop. But the older you get, you have a frame of reference. And I'm going to ask you a question. Everybody that's 70 years old now, that's not even me. I'm not even 70 yet. But everybody 70 plus, can you tell me, has this country changed yes. dramatically? Yes. Yeah, it has. The country we're living in today, now for the rest of us, 10 years ago, was it different than it is today? 20 years ago was it different. 30 years ago was it different. We're moving, folks. We're moving. And now we're wondering, what's going on? You see, we just make the assumption that it will always be what it once was. But it won't be. And we're starting to see the wheels come off. Are we catching it? We're starting to see inflation. You know what inflation means? That you actually possess less than you once did just because things are inflating. You can't keep up. No one's going to keep up. Prices are skyrocketing. Gas, food. Now they're even talking about supply chains. Isn't that right? Why? Because, you know, the system that was put in place is falling apart. Why is this all happening, Pastor? Because as a nation, we've turned our backs on God. We don't have the same value system. Come on now. It's the truth. If you've been around for a while, you'd say that's true. We've turned our backs on God. You know, if you, if, if you would come in a time machine 60, 70 years ago, you'd be shocked at how much more godly this country is. But we're embracing totally different values. Well, Jesus himself, I'm, I'm going to jump. I'll, I'll just jump over this. I think I've made my point there. But let me, let me close with this. Why don't we stand as I close? I don't want to just end on a negative note. Because that's not a good thing to do. In verse 22, Jeremiah says this. And I love what he says. He says, do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. For you are the one who does all this. What's all this? All the good things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Do you realize that God sends the sunshine on the just and the unjust? He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Our hope must be in God. Do you know what's happening today? People are losing hope. 
You say, why is that? Because they're losing sight of God. The Apostle Paul said that people without God are without hope in this world. And as I was preparing this message, you know, I was thinking, okay, what am I trying to get across here? Like, what is God trying to get across? What does this apply to us? And uh, at the end of this morning, we were praying. I had this image of the church at Laodicea. The Laodicean church, they had an estimation of themselves. They were rich, everything was good, they had no want, just enjoying life. And Jesus was evaluating the church. You know what he said about the Laodicean church? He said, you are naked and you are poor. So as a matter of fact, he says, I wish you were either hot or cold. Remember that statement in the book of Revelation? You know what that meant? He was using an image that they understood. You see, there was waters nearby that were hot springs. And then there were waters nearby that were cool springs, refreshing, you know. But their particular water was coming from the hot springs, and by the time it got to their community, it was lukewarm, and it was not drinkable. As a matter of fact, it would cause problems to your stomach and you'd want to throw up, okay? It, it created that kind of problems in your track. So Jesus uses that. He says, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, you're making me sick. I don't know about you, but can you imagine, you know, here's your estimation of yourself. Oh, my life is great. I'm a, God, I'm a great Christian. And God, Jesus is over here saying, no, you're poor, naked, wretched, you're blind, and you make me sick. I don't want that estimation coming from Christ about my life. Then he says this, repent and I will bless you. That's, that's always God's answer, you know. Repent, come to me and I'll fix the problem. And then he says it this way, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Isn't that interesting? You know, we think this is for non-believers. No, no, this was written to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. That's an interesting statement. I will come in. Where are you, Jesus? Well, I think Jesus in a lot of people's life is, he's in our lives, but he's not inside where there's preeminence. I'm living in intimacy with Jesus. He's in my life, and I get up and I say, Lord, I'm so glad you're in my life. You're the one that's leading my day. Thy will be done. Your kingdom come. See, that's, it's about your will, your kingdom. That's so powerful. That's what brings the hope, the joy, the peace, the power over sin. Those are all the good things. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice. You know, Psalm 95 says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the day of provocation. What was that day? Wilderness. A generation actually ticked God off because for 40 years they resisted God, rebelled, complained, carried on. God said, I'm not letting you enter into the promised land. No rest for you. Oh yeah, but our kids are not gonna, you know, they use their kids as an excuse. God says, no, you're not making it, the kids will. They use the kids as an excuse, you know, for why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, sometimes as parents we do that too, you know. It's an excuse. So with every head bowed this morning, you know, my prayer, and let me say it to this way, can you say, this is between you and God, nothing to do with the pastor, you and God, am I living to do God's will? Is Christ preeminent in my life? Am I hungering and thirsting after righteousness? 
If I'm, am I seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first? And if you can't say yes to those questions, I think he's knocking, saying, I'd like in. I want you to surrender to my Lordship. Now, I don't know, I've had this in my life many times, the Spirit of God spoken to me, and I've made a fresh surrender, a fresh consecration, where I said, here's my life, okay, let's go, God. Whatever you want is fine with me. That's not a bad thing to do, guys. It's not, and you know, some of you, you're, you're saying, hey, I'm already there, Pastor. He's first in my life. But maybe you feel today the Spirit of God is talking to you and He's knocking at your heart door. I'm going to have you do something very courageous. This isn't saying that you're doing terrible things. This is just saying, you know what? I want to surrender completely. I want to, I'm hearing that. I sense it this morning. Spirit of God speaking to me. I'm going to invite you to come quickly right now to the front. Just slip right here. This is a, a moment where you're saying, I'm going to make a fresh act of surrender today because I sense in my heart God knocking and saying, I want in. You just come forward, and I'm going to pray with you this morning. Yeah, come. We're living in a perilous time, my friends. This is a very perilous time. It's a very dangerous time. Lots of challenges. If Christ is first in our life, I can tell you, you're going to go through the storm. You'll make it. Winds will beat, the waves will come, your house is on a rock. You'll survive it. It's beautiful. I'm going to pray this morning. It's great. You come this morning. We're opening our hearts saying, Jesus, I'm inviting you in. It's beautiful. It speaks of intimacy, spiritual intimacy. So Father, I pray today for my brothers and sisters as they're surrendering to you today. I pray that this renewed act of consecration, this renewed act of saying, Lord, I want you to be totally in charge of my life, my mind, my body, my marriage, my relationships, and where I'm at work, wherever I am, Lord, I want you to be absolutely supreme. I don't want you just to be in my life. I want you to be at the center where I'm putting you above everything else. And I thank you for that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.